The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thank you very much, Carl and crew. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Courtney Reagan, and today for Scott Wapner, where rates on the rise as hot inflation comes in even hotter than expected, hitting a 40-year high. Will it cause the Fed to get more aggressive on rate hikes. We'll debate that and discuss the best inflation protection strategies for your portfolio. Our investment committee today includes Shannon Sakosha, Bryn Talkington, Rog Seachin, and Jim Labenthal. Let's get you a quick check on the market this hour. Major average is down more than 1% earlier, though. The Dow Jones Industrial Average off just about two-tenths of a percent. S&P 500 down a third. And the Nasdaq Composite also down just about three-tenths of a percent. Russell 2000 holding on to some gains by about three quarters of a percent. And of course, as always, keeping a very close eye on the bond market with the 10-year yield hitting 2% for the first time since August of 2019. We're sitting at 2.01 at this very moment, which makes sense, of course, that we're seeing weakness in utilities in some of these very rate-sensitive sectors. It makes sense that we're seeing utilities lower by about 1.3% and information technology, that big cap tech trade, down by about 1% or so. Brent, let's get started with you here. Kick us off. What do you make of the market action today? And whether the Fed actually needs to get a little more aggressive now that we've got this hotter than, infl- hotter than expected inflation data, we now know what it is. What should the Fed be doing in response? Well, I think, first of all, investors need to understand this inflation print. And so let's just do some quick economics. You know, CPI measures rate of change. So the 7% print was year over year rate of change. And just so for some perspective, this time last year, WTI was around $59. Right now, WTI is at 90. So that was a 35% increase in oil. So that's a huge impact on CPI. And so as as we roll forward, this rate of change is going to shrink. And I think the Fed's very clear about that. And so I do think CPI, we're going to have some hot prints for the next few months, but that will wane. I think second of all, you know, don't forget, Courtney, the Fed is still buying bonds right now which to me is just so incredible. And we're living this you know, monetary and fiscal experiment. And so I think the next few months are gonna be volatile. I don't think the Fed is gonna come out with a 50 basis points because once again, they're still buying bonds right now. They could have stopped that program two months, three months ago. And so I think they've been very transparent. They're gonna, we're gonna get a hike in March. We'll probably get a hike, a few more hikes, but I think they're gonna be very, very data dependent because don't forget, we have a $30 trillion U.S. debt. For every 1% increase you get in treasuries, that's $300 billion in interest. And so I don't think the Fed actually has the ability. They may have the willingness. They don't have the willingness. They don't have the ability either to raise rates just because we already have high deficits. But I think the market's going to be churning around until at least we get one of these rate hikes, which is still, what, five, five weeks away. 
Yeah, you know, Jim, I mean, Bryn makes a good point about the Fed, of course, being data dependent. But if you look at this data, it's pretty shocking, even if we knew inflation was hot, to just see for sure that we're sitting at 40 year highs. Yet you've got the markets more or less shrugging it off. We are well off the session lows. What do you make of the market reaction and what you think the Fed should do in response, Jim? So, Courtney, first off, it's good to work with you. I know we've been on before, but never, I think, have you been in the anchor seat with me. So this is a nice treat. Um, I don't know if you were watching the show about a week ago, but I said that the market had already adjusted to the Fed's aggressive rate hike uh, regime, which is coming. And I think that's why the market is shrugging it off today. It, it, the market now has the atmosphere that the, that the rate hikes are coming and they may be fast and furious. For the markets to go down hard from here, you need another catalyst, something totally dissociated from inflation and the Fed. That could come, by the way. You know, you've got the continuing resolution for the budget expiring next week. Nobody's even talking about that. You've got Russia and Ukraine. But I do want to answer your question a little bit more directly, which is that this print is obviously much hotter. A lot of us were looking for a softer CPI print. And so now the odds are that the Fed will come out of the gate storming uh, with a 50 basis point rate hike. There is one more CPI print before the March 15th meeting. That would have to be significantly lighter than expected uh, for this not to be a 50 basis point kickoff, in my opinion. But I think the more important thing for stock portfolio managers like me, like Bryn, like Shannon and, and Rob, is that this does not mean the market has to go down. The market has already adjusted to it. Uh, we've got hot inflation because the economy is good. Profits are growing. Revenues are growing. So the market is going to focus on those more than what the Fed has already baked into the cake. You know, Rob, Jim makes a lot of good points here about what's going on with the economy being pretty strong. We know what's going on in the supply chain. It's been going on for a while. It doesn't seem necessarily to be abating, but perhaps we're all getting used to it, whether we're getting used to it in the form of higher prices or companies' ability to sort of manage through those and then the ultimate outcome on their results. So, Rob, what do you make of what's going on right now as we look at inflation and as the Fed is looking at the hand that they may be playing in five weeks? from now so uh, you know we came in thinking the fed was behind the curve we definitely still think they're behind the curve they've done a great job as jim pointed out as Bryn pointed out in setting the table to allow them to be as aggressive as they can be given the data the economy inflation employment wages and and the like and i you know there's the markets are pricing in a 50 percent chance of a 50 basis point hike in march we think that it's more likely going to be a 25 basis point hike. The Fed's constantly reminding us that they're data dependent. An initial hike of 50 basis points would tell the market that they are, in fact, behind the curve, which I think most of us know they are. But it could entrench inflation expectations. And even though there's indications that supply chains are easing, we think that we're two to three months away from peak inflation. And even after it happens, we think inflation is going to stay elevated beyond the Fed's expectations. So it will take a lot longer for the Fed to reduce inflation by rising rates. And that only impacts the demand side. Supply change constraints and inter interruptions affect supply. And that's been a bigger driver of inflation than demand. So. My hope in all this, and I think everybody that's on the call and what Jim said, is, you know what? The Fed's setting the table. The markets are now expecting what's happening. And therefore, when you have something that's front burner, 
for a really long time, markets desensitized to it. And that's what I think you're seeing. Shannon, I want to get your take here today on what's going on with the market action, whether it pertains exactly to the response in inflation or perhaps what the Fed may be going to try to do about it as they try to balance this dual mandate when they come up with a decision here. But we still have a number of data points between then and now. I think Jim makes a good point, and actually everybody that's already spoken ahead of me makes great points. But I do want to point out, um, I think a lot is keying on whether it's 25 basis points or 50 basis points in March. And I think it's actually the absolute value of, of the number of hikes that we're going to see that's relevant. Um, the, hike, the hikes are going to happen um, between March and, and September, uh, in my opinion. I think that the Fed will then start to see an abatement in some of the inflation. It's important to note, Courtney, as well, that there's a difference between CPI and PCE, and PCE is what the Fed really looks at. The difference there is housing. And so if you have 40 percent or so of, of CPI associated with housing increases, um, you're starting to see some ease in inflation in rents, for instance, in this particular print that we got this morning. Um, but I do think that we could see actually a, a longer term elevated CPI if we continue to see housing uh, as strong as it's been over the course of the last few years. So the Fed's going to be looking at the data that we're looking at, but they're also going to be looking at the PCE, determining if, for instance, some of these sharp increases in food costs are primarily the result of Omicron and shipping issues, staffing issues. Uh, you know, there may be products that are stuck in the supply chain across the country where we're seeing that pass through to food. I, I think more importantly, if you look at the 12-month period following the first interest rate hike, if you go back um, for the last uh, five rate hiking sessions, the S&P 500 tends to be positive um, 12 months after that. And that's because the economy tends to still be growing. And so I think it's important that we digest from a valuation perspective. I think I agree with Jim. I think that we're not going to retest particularly the lows in the NASDAQ that we experienced in January. Um, but it is important that we're going to get a lot of choppiness around this data, but that a year from now, the economy should still be growing above two, 2019 pace. Um, and we expect CPI to be back down towards the, the 3% level, which I believe the economy can support. A lot of good points there, and especially talking about food. We haven't really brought that up, of course, but a big input into many wallets and home budgets, of course, and meat. I was just really shocked to see that the uh, price of meat up 13.6% as a whole category. Some actually even bigger numbers when you dive in deeper. But I want to continue the conversation of what's going on with the Fed and bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. He's got a take on everything going on and the probabilities of that rate hike and where we sit now. Hey, Steve. Hey, Courtney. Yeah. I mean, what's happening here now is that immediately after this meeting, the market started pricing in the possibility of a 50 basis point rate hike. It's now, uh, I guess it's 55, 56, 57 percent somewhere in there. It had gone into the meeting of uh, 55. We have now we had gotten in the meeting it down at 30 percent. It spent a lot of the time down at 20. So mostly what the market thought was that they would do uh, uh, a 25 basis point rate hike. And then it shot up. I don't believe that that's what the Fed wants to do. That was not their intention. I've been listening to a lot of I've listened to all the Fed speak in the last couple of weeks. Um, I think they've held out the possibility of 50, but I think they wanted to start with successive rate hikes. The change now, I think, is if you're a central bank and perhaps you feel you're behind the curve and the market offers you the possibility of doing 50 because it's already priced it in, 
the Fed might well take it. So I think what we have to do from here is listen to some of the guidance right now, see how they feel about this recent report. Jim is, of course, right. There is another CPI report coming. Unfortunately, I don't think many people expect there to be much relief in the inflation numbers in the next CPI report. And then you look here, um, the idea of, of the number of hikes is really what's key. You have six hikes priced in, and the news this morning is that what was six hikes going through February of next year is now six hikes through December. And that brings you up to the 150, 175 range. And, you know, everybody's got to readjust their their ratios and their sense of what cost or what level of ratio stocks ought to be at if you're going to have a 150, 175 Fed funds rate at the end of the year, which is... By the way, pretty much where we went into this pandemic with. So you're back to where you were, except for the difference here is that you have a much higher inflation rate. Uh, reading the tea leaves, you are very good at this job here, Mr. Leesman, and sort of giving us what you believe the Fed speakers are trying to tell us ahead of this meeting. I want to bring in all the, all the gang and keep you here, Steve, as well. Jim, you were called out by uh, Steve there in particular. What do you make of the possibility of that 50 basis point rate hike, at least potentially on the table if the market is giving the opportunity to consider it? Yeah, I think I think Steve just made an excellent point. And, you know, when I blend what he said with what Shannon said, which is basically, you know, it's the number of rate hikes that's going to matter. It suddenly dawns on me. It should have dawned on me earlier that this this market is likely to rip the stock market. That is on March 16th. And the reason is, is because this is like ripping the Band-Aid off or this is like taping, taking a dive into a beautiful mountain lake that's cold. You know, when it first happens, it's shocking. And then the body adjusts. And that's what's going to happen. And frankly, I, I agree with Steve. You know, the market's giving the Fed cover. I think they're clearly behind. I mean, the fact that everybody thought this print was going to be lighter than expectations and it came in the hottest since whenever, I think they have to come out with a 50 basis point hike. They've got the cover to do it. Rip the Band-Aid off. Let's dive into the beautiful mountain lake because you know what? The market's going to be fine. It's just going to be kind of this nail-biting, annoying, tantalizing moment for the next four weeks. Jim, can can I just make one quick point here, which is that the market is the Fed is behind if you look at real rates, which are still deeply negative. But I have a spreadsheet on my uh, a computer here that updates automatically every time a price changes. I have a hundred basis points of tightening in the two-year yield from the time that Powell pivoted on the 30th of November or the, e- the evening of the 29th. So it is interesting. The market is, has taken that; it's already in there. The Fed is going to raise rates in order to catch up with where the market is. But the market has done a lot of tightening for the Fed. There's an awful lot of tightening in the market already that should, I mean, the hope is it slows the economy down and does in the second half get a handle on inflation. Uh, So I just want to make that point that there's a lot of tightening in the market already. Rob, what do you make of that uh, sort of balance between... Let me say one thing to that, Steve. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. I'll just make it quick, which is that I I get your point. I have to say I'm a little worried about the two-year, and I'm a little worried about the curve flattening that's gone on for the last several weeks because the the bond market is screaming that the Fed's going to get this wrong. And I, I don't know that that's true or not, but that's what the bond market is screaming, not just hinting, screaming. Rob, go ahead and jump in here. What do you make of the idea of potentially us jumping into this cold water pool that feels shocking? but then sort of gets us to a more comfortable place and Mr. Leesman's assessment. 
I think maybe this Fed would be worried too much about the consequences of, uh, of being wrong, even if the market presents that opportunity. And so my sense is that they probably should be doing that, but uh, the market wouldn't react very favorably uh, necessarily to that. And they need that to be a necessarily favorable reaction that allows them to continue with their mandate, which is to tighten, tighten policy. I think if you look at every survey, the thing that's going to derail this economy is this if inflationary pressures slow down consumers. If it's business, if it's consumers, whoever you talk to, they're worried about inflation. And so priority number one for economic health is dealing with the inflation problem. Now, I don't need I don't think you need to rip off the Band-Aid to do that. I think you can probably do that with some thoughtful telegraphing in saying that you're data dependent. And my sense is the data will continue to support the fact that they should continue to tighten. So I don't agree that they need to rip it off. Mr. Leesman, Steve, thank you very much for being here with us. We are going to let you go get back to your other business at hand. And Rob brought us to a really nice place because I want to get some inflation protection strategies from the committee right now. Bren, I want to start with you. Based on what we know now, based on what you think could be happening in the future with inflation, how do you best protect your portfolio? Well, I think so. So first of all, you know, historically, if you look into markets, what what market is most closely tied with an increasing inflation? And that's energy, because it's a big part of CPI. It's a big part of the market. So and you've already seen that manifest itself. So, you know, energy was one of the top performing asset classes in 2020, um, 2021. It's been the top performing asset class in 2022. And so you're already seeing that come to fruition. And so I think as an investor, I think energy has, has longer runway, but I think that the end of the year is gonna look different than the beginning of the year. And so I think of that if you're pivoting your portfolio now to have a lot of inflation sensitivity, you could be setting yourself up, um, we'll say at the end of the year, to not have such great returns. So I would, I would say the best way to protect yourself right now is being really diversified because ultimately equities long-term protect against inflation. Where you're gonna erode and where you're gonna lose money is in long duration bonds and in cash. And so I think that as inflation will, as, as everyone just said, as Rob just said, as inflation continues to be high over the next few quarters, you know, I think energy is still a good place to be, but I do think that diversification is gonna be really important because if at the end of the year, GDP is half of what it is, and that rate of change with inflation begins to slow, I do think people are going to be pivoting back into higher growth technology names, which, which ultimately, Courtney, the only thing that's going to fix the supply chain of the L.A. ports are not raising rates. It's technology and innovation. So, Bryn, if you want to be diversified and you're paying attention to energy, but you're also looking elsewhere, give us some actual plays here. Where should investors yep. be putting money to work? So I think from a from a, a cyclicality and from an inflation perspective, we really like energy. We also own this ETF called it's SVAL. It's a small cap value um, factor based strategy. It's got really heavy exposure to small regional banks as well as small cap value industrials. And so that but really plays into rising rates as well as inflation. So I would say from that perspective, you know, energy and small cap value. But then also I want to book in that I still want to own some technology names that I think are going to be secular growers and that actually could 
could, could fix what's happening longer term with the supply chain and can grow through a low GDP, which is, I think, what we're going to have in the next couple of years. Got it. Shannon, I want to move to you. I understand you've got some energy in your portfolio right now as well as a possible inflation protection play. Courtney, I do. And before I go into those picks, I just want to say one thing. If we go back to the period where the last period really had meaningful inflation, um, if you looked at the S&P 500, energy and financials were a much bigger part of the the, uh, the index than technology was at that time. And so if you're thinking about adding cyclicality to your uh, to your portfolio, uh, there's a few things that you want to look at. Energy, obviously, as, as Bryn stated, uh, the name that we like in that space is Valero. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I think she did a great job of, of talking about why energy and why now? Um, You know, materials. Materials tends to be positively correlated with inflation. We also have this looming build back better idea that although a package for infrastructure may not be as sizable as as we once thought, there is clearly a desire um, and it's a bipartisan desire to fix our roads and bridges, ports, um, especially with all of these supply chain issues we have. So Martin Marietta, um, largest aggregate producer in the United States, very involved in both residential and non-residential construction could be a beneficiary of that. And then, you know, taking this inflation one step further um, and seeing the the reaction to inflation by the Fed, you want to make sure that you're looking at financials. And J.P. Morgan, although they had a disappointing um, on on several levels earnings report earlier this quarter, I think if you're looking at long-term opportunity here to increase your financials exposure, J.P. Morgan has a, a multifaceted business. And then finally, if you're looking overall at the cyclicality of your portfolio, you're probably overweight to growth, um, particularly if you own some of these big tech names outside of your index exposure. And so adding something like an emerging markets vehicle, ticker, um, you could use an ETF like IEM. That emerging markets vehicle, and you know you can add that to your portfolio to add that cyclicality. Yeah, I E M G there, the uh, MCI for emerging markets. (laughs) Yeah, I know a lot of vowels there pushed together. Um, Jim, what are you what are you playing here? How are you playing the energy market? I know you've got some names. You believe that's an inflation protection as well. Yeah, energy is the obvious play. I do have to acknowledge that there's been one heck of a rally there. So I'm actually looking at one of the laggards, Kinder Morgan, which is a pipeline company, not necessarily directly tied to the price of energy, but it does participate as the energy sector rallies. uh, And really, there's a lot of value there. It's a pipeline company. The other one, this is more obvious, Cleveland Cliffs. This is an integrated steel producer. Everybody on the show knows I love the company. They're reporting tomorrow. Um, Hot rolled coil uh, steel prices. Yeah, they're down from their high, but they're still very high and likely to go higher as the economy continues to expand. Lastly, uh, Alaska Airlines. Um, Demand is up as people come out of their COVID bunkers uh, and they start traveling again. Costs are up, but you know what? The airlines are pretty good at passing through those costs. So I expect margin appreciation there, especially as mergers start to come into vogue as uh, Frontier and Spirit emerging. So, you know, on the margins, that decreases competition, allows price hikes to continue. Yeah, to your point, Kinder Morgan, a relative underperformer over the last three months or so. And for those listening on the radio, if they can't see it, Cleveland Cliffs is higher by about three and a half percent here ahead of that report. Um, how about you, Rob? You know, um, we had Shannon mentioned J.P. Morgan. I understand you're putting some money to work in a financial, but it's it's not J.P.M. What are you doing here? 
Uh, we own JPM. It was one of my top three picks the last time I was on the show. Uh, so I love JP Morgan. But to give you something different, we're buying Morgan Stanley uh, in our opportunistic portfolio. We like financials due to the cyclical exposure, positive correlation to rising rates. It's an example of a quality business that's uh, executing on all uh, and firing on all cylinders, really. And it trades at a slight premium, but we think deservedly so. And then the other thing that I would say is when you think about portfolio construction from a macro versus a micro level, at a macro level in the nine prior rate height cycles since the 70s, equities did well, but specifically cyclicals in value in non-U.S. equities. And so I think while it does not invalidate a long-term strategy, you have to pick up things along the way that are ad alpha. And one of the things we like is this INFL, which is the Horizon Kinetics Inflationary Beneficiaries ETF. Um, fielding a portfolio of names that benefit from rising prices, principally in small and mid cap. It's 40% financials, 40% energy, and 20% commodity-like names. And so that's great. And then everybody mentioned kind of energy, and we like EOG at a, sur at a surgical level. So those are ways that we're trying to adjust and take advantage of what we predicted and currently see uh, a high inflationary environment. The ETF with the ticker INFL is sort of appropriate, right, going into this long weekend. Before we move on to the next topic here, can I just ask you, why buy Morgan Stanley here if it's trading at all-time highs? Presumably you think it's going even higher from here and you're going to try to capture some of that, Rob? That's right. It's really a story of, of execution, and it's really warranted given the healthy trends that they're seeing in their businesses. So, so for us, you know, we, we had one that didn't work as well on, on execution. We believe it will pay dividends later on. That's J.P. Morgan due to rising wage prices. And we think when, when that happens, they're going to capture market share because they're retaining great talent. But right now, it's hard to argue that Morgan Stanley is the firm that's uh, kind of executing best within financials. Got it. We're going to move on to a bright spot in the market today. Twilio, the stock soaring on the back of its earnings, but still down about 50 percent from its highs. Jim, you own it. What do you think? Time to buy some more. You want to wait till it comes back down to earth after today's intraday move? I, I, I'm going to be so self-contradictory here. I almost hate myself in advance. Uh -oh. I have a tiny position <laughs> in this stock. I know. And, and, and if Scott were here, he'd kill me for this. So I'm glad you're here, Courtney. You'll be nicer. Um, look, I have a 1% position in this stock. And the reason I have it, and it's such small size, is it's a really cool company. What they do is awesome. And they're growing like a weed. The problem is I can't value it. I have no idea if this is the right price or if it should be below 200 or above 300 So for right now, I'm watching and waiting. I'm happy I have a toehold. I'm happy with the movement today. But I'd really like to see some earnings in the near term before I decide whether to add or not. So there's my self-contradictory statement. All right. Well, year to date down about 15 percent. Of course, the year is young, but it's up more than 10 percent today on the move. So we'll come back to you on that one. I'm sure of it in the future. Roblox shares, though, have plunged about 30 percent since the start of the year. But a bullish call out on the stock today. One of our committee members owns it. We'll see if they're sticking with it next. Stick with us. Halftime is back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more.
B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Local officials in Canada are preparing to physically remove protesting truckers if necessary. The mayor of Windsor, Canada, tells CNN that police support from nearby areas is arriving and more is on the way. Meanwhile, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, is urging Canadian authorities to quickly resolve the standoff. She says the blockade is having a significant impact on her state. And on the news tonight, what's being done to resolve the protests and to look at the economic impact on Canada and the U.S. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. In England, meantime, Prince Charles has tested positive for COVID for now a second time. He contracted the coronavirus in March of 2020 and suffered only mild symptoms. Charles recently met with his mother, Queen Elizabeth, but Buckingham Palace says that she is showing no signs of the disease. And Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred says that spring training remains on hold because of the management lockout. However, he says he is hoping for a deal that will allow the regular season to begin as scheduled on March 31st. Spring training was supposed to start next Wednesday. Courtney, I'll send it back to you. It's such a long season, Ralph. Thank you very much. Well, Disney rallying on this down day. It's best performing Dow stock today with just about a third of the average positive. Disney Plus and its parks showing signs of rebounding. Shannon, you own Disney. I imagine you're a pretty happy shareholder here on this day after the results. What did you like? Well, Courtney, I think if you look at Disney, one of the most important reasons why you own Disney is the brand. And parks allow Disney to further monetize that brand. So if we think about the the cinematic releases um, and obviously think about Disney Plus, um, a lot of that is consistent with the view that you need new content. Uh, The parks are actually able to monetize old content along with new content. And most importantly, they're able to pass through price increases. So Disney is showing that it has significant pricing power at their parks. It's showing that the parks are going to continue to be able to add cash flow overall to be able to fund the investment in Disney Plus content that everyone's so concerned about. Um, My questions around ESPN are sort of still existent, and so we're hoping to hear a little bit more about the strategy for ESPN going forward. But I think overall, this rebound in parks is really important because, again, this is a key piece of the Disney branding message. Yeah, I think a lot of questions still out there about ESPN. You're not the only one, and the pricing power with the parks is pretty astonishing to me. I'm astonished at how much it costs to go to Disney, and yet millions of people do it. 
all the time. Well, let's move on here quickly. Shares of Roblox down almost 30% so far this year. The stock was reiterated overweight, though, at Morgan Stanley on its new partnership with the NFL. So it is our call of the day. Shares of Roblox up about 3.5%. Bryn, you own it. Is this a name that you want to stick with? Is this more of a long-term play, less of a trade? Talk us through. This is a big metaverse play. So how are you thinking through ownership of this name? Well, so, so you know, Dave Bazuki, who founded the company, this is actually an old company that IPO. It's a, it's a new publicly traded company. And so I think when, when Facebook, you know, renamed their name to Metaverse, this, this company definitely had a halo effect to that. And you saw it, you know, race up into that. But there's, this is a real company. I mean, Facebook has no, no products around the Metaverse. You know, Roblox last quarter, their revenues from Q3 21 to Q3 2020 were up 100%. They did 500 million of revenues. They have 170 million of free cash flow. They had 11 billion hours spent. And I think what's really interesting is that this is a really sticky platform where they allow outside developers, which they pay, to create content for the users. And so what's interesting is that you just saw the NFL sign a partnership with them. Sony recently filed a partnership with them. Warner Brothers also has a new partnership with them. And so what's nice about it is these content, these developers create content. Um, the one thing I'm looking out for this quarter is, you know, with the huge success of Squid Games, you know, on Netflix, mm-hmm. what actually happened are the developers went in there and created all these Squid Game worlds, which really drove new users. So I don't know on a quarter over quarter comparison how that's going to follow through. And so the way I own it is I own the stock, but I also have sold calls against it because mm-hmm. to your point, it's down 30 percent. It's a volatile name and you can really collect some good call premium and especially going into earnings. Because in this earnings seasons, who knows? It could be up 20% or down 20% just based on, you know, what you're seeing happening with companies, you know, with companies this quarter. Yeah, who knows? There's so much that could be happening here in the metaverse in Web3. Maybe it's a boon. Maybe it's not. I know there's a lot of debate over that. But we're going to move on, get to the rest of the show here. Uber giving up all of its big gains on the back of earnings. So one of our committee members is at Uber's investor meeting today, right now. He'll tell us what he heard, and he's going to trade it. That's next on the Halftime Report. We're back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Well, 
Uber rallied on the back of its earnings, but the stock giving up gains as the company meets with investors today. Investment committee member Surat Sethi is at the meeting. He joins us now on the phone. Surat, what happened here? There was a good reaction to the earnings, then investor day started and everything turned around. I think what happened was, like, they gave us uh, projections for 2024, which is $5 billion of EBITDA. And I think what investors were probably saying, you know, how fast is that going to happen? And now it's a show-me story. I mean, they were positive by $86 million for the last quarter. It was the first time they were as a public company. And I think now it's how can you execute? And, and they laid out a really good plan. I mean, if you look at how they laid out the plan and they're using leverage in their technology, they've got – Great products in terms of mobility and delivery, which is a multi-product platform. 46% of the users use both. And then you have option value and freight. And they're looking at things like Uber for business that's really going to grow, advertising business. And I think their big issue is the supply. It's really not the demand. So I think as we come out of COVID, uh, I like the stock. I like the setup here. I think you get a couple of good quarters of execution. Uh, management was very detailed as to their plan, and they've really focused on their core businesses. They've gotten rid of all the businesses that don't lose money, and they're a global player. So they're the top player in you know seven of their ten, ten markets. Um, so I think you got to wait on this one. Uh, I'm patient. You know, it's been a rocky kind of last six months, uh, especially as we had closing down again. But what they've laid out in terms of operational leverage. Uh, and a total addressable market. I think uh, this is one that I want to stick with for the long term. Uber said its food delivery business turned profitable for the first time. They still have some way to go when it comes to the suburbs and some of that food delivery, but that certainly looks good. You mentioned mobility, delivery, mobility up 67%, delivery up 34%. As it goes forward, though, what other roadblocks, no pun intended, are potentially in the way for Uber as we work through an economy that's reopening, as we work through potentially a new normal. And how does Uber play into all of that? So I think, the you know, a couple of the overhangs are always going to be, does government come in in terms of independent contractor? You know, they're pretty confident when they survey all their contractors, you know, four to one say, hey, we don't want to be employees. So that's always kind of been an overhang on the stock. And the other one is, look, as we, as we open, how much more will each, uh, you know, leverage their business? But given a hybrid model going forward, that, you know, I think that's a positive for them. But, you know, the, the other one that I think a lot of people haven't really focused on is there's a huge market of younger kids now that don't want to drive. And that's a market that they're going to actually approach. And in some of the other countries, and they're going to do that all over the world, they're also approaching taxis. So hailable taxis are going to come under the Uber umbrella. So the addressable market, as I mentioned before, can be pretty large. Uh, but I think this is, again, uh, you know, the overhang is, hey, we're coming out of COVID. You've only been public for a couple of years. How are you going to execute? And, you know, cash flow is really important. With the interest rates going up, companies don't want, uh, you know, investors don't want to own companies that don't have cash flow. One other thing just to add, they, are, they have $6 billion, uh, of cash on their balance sheet. They do not have any debt. Mm-hmm. So as they go into operating leverage, positive cash flow, I think this is a really good kind of story to look at because they don't have to go back to the capital markets uh, in case things slow down or they want to expand. Got it. Good detail, good color from the meeting. Surat Sethi, thank you for calling in and giving us those details, explaining what happened there in the stock. It's bonkers to me also, by the way, that some kids are not interested in driving. It was like the only thing I was interested in when I was 16 was getting that license. But hey, I guess it's a whole new generation. Let's move over to Rob Seachin. I know you're big on the opening trade in general. Uber had some good points about trips to the airports tripling in this quarter compared to the year before. So that sort of plays in to 
the reopening. Rob, what do you make of Uber as a trade if that's what you believe is happening here and that we are emerging from the pandemic, perhaps stronger in some sectors? So I, I believe there's probably some positive tailwinds for Uber. We don't own it and have not done enough work on it. So I'm not going to comment on Uber, but I will tell you uh, that, that, that watching the reopening trade, specifically through some of the airline stocks, which again, we don't own, but we watch. We want to make sure that we understand what's happening there. They're behaving incredibly well. And that's a good indication that the reopening trade uh, is staying intact. We do own Hilton Worldwide. We do own Google both of which are significant beneficiaries and leveraged extremely to the reopening trade. And today, in our opportunistic portfolio, we're looking at PEJ, which is the Invesco Leisure and Hospitality ETF. You're going to have uh, Expedia, Marriott, um, Booking, a lot of those types of uh, secure uh, stocks in that one security. And so while we haven't added it yet, I can tell you that we're, we're probably going to add that in our opportunistic portfolio today or tomorrow. So those are things that we think have a lot of legs. Um, it's supported by some fundamentally good price action on uh, some of the real levered stocks to the reopening. And we think it's a great way for investors to get exposure in a diversified way. A number of those leisure names you rallied off there are actually, in fact, rallying today as we look at a market that is mostly lower. Well, coming up next, new developments in the battle for Kohl's. We're following the money. That is next on Halftime. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We have some new developments in the battle over Kohl's. Leslie Picker is following the money on the department store battle. Leslie, what do you got? Hey, Court, that's right. We do have an official proxy fight now for the majority of control of the company's board, with McKellum announcing a slate today for 10 seats out of 14 on the board. Last year, McKellum and a few other activists reached an agreement to add three independent directors to the board after having initially nominated nine people. So this marks the firm's second year in a row nominating directors at Kohl's. Now, McKellum's John Duskin telling me that he's pleased with the reaction to their slate and believes that their candidates are even more appealing uh, with another credible bidder emerging. More on that in just a moment. The window closes tomorrow, though, for nominations, and it's unclear whether any other activists that are in this stock will actually put forth a slate. Uh, Starboard Engine Capital both own stakes, but it's really, really rare to see dual slates for a proxy contest alongside that of, say, McKellum, which has already put forth their slate. Now, Really, at the end of the day, Gort, you and I both know this is all about a sale, and there has been a lot of news on that lately. I've confirmed earlier reporting that Leonard Green is among those interested. There are several private equity firms at this point in time, several real estate firms that are all in the mix here uh, as part of the sales process. Now, I have no direct reporting, though, to support speculation that Amazon is interested, although some analysts and activists have pointed to the fact that uh, the Kohl's private plane, their jet, was in Seattle recently, Amazon's headquarters. Now, it was only Friday that Kohl's authorized its bankers to really start uh, engaging with interested parties in a more formal way. So we should be expecting a lot more news over the next few weeks on that front court. Leslie, and of course, some of the early reaction, at least officially from Kohl's, was that these uh, initial bids for the sale of the company were really undervaluing what it believed it could bring down the road with its strategy that's currently in place or that it believes that its intrinsic value is. Do you have 
Any indication that new higher bids may be emerging now that Kohl's has sort of officially engaged bankers to to take a look and perhaps get more serious about some of these? That's a great question, Court. So the first two bids that were public out there, that was the Acacia Research one, which is backed by Starboard, as well as Sycamore. Those bids were around $64, $65 each uh, per share. Now, those bids, I'm told, were more expressions of interest. There were no formal discussions about that specific price point because they were pretty early on in the process, as was the case for a lot of these private equity firms. So I think now the fact that the board has authorized Goldman Sachs and PJT to really start having more formal conversations, we stood, we should be able to get a, a sense of the real seriousness surrounding price. But Kohl's, as you can see, trading around $61 per share, which is pretty close to where those bids were, which indicates that the market thinks the bids should come in either around there or perhaps above that level. Good stuff, Leslie. Yeah, as you point out, Kohl's shares are now lower on the session, turning lower here just recently down about 1%. Thanks for that. Keep us updated when you have more. Well, the committee is ready to answer your questions next. So email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back in two minutes. Let's get you a quick check on the markets as we've taken a decided turn lower. You can see the Dow Jones Industrial Average now lower by about seven-tenths of a percent. Look at the Nasdaq off about one percent and the S&P 500 off about one percent as well. You know we're watching the yield on the 10 years. We've ticked above two percent. Right now we are 2.043 percent. That's been moving only higher after the last hour. We will continue to keep an eye on that and the rest of the markets for you. But the investment community is now ready to answer some of your questions Let's start with Glenn in New Jersey. He's asking, quote, what healthcare stocks are the best investments with a five plus year time frame? Who, who's got this one? Bryn. Oh, sure. Yeah. Think, uh, I, indiv- you know, individual names are always so much better, so much more exciting. But for this one, I'm going to take XLV. It's the S&P Healthcare Index. You're going to earn Thermo Fisher, United Healthcare, Abbott, J&J, Bristol Myers, because healthcare, I can guarantee you, will change a whole bunch over the next five years. So this ETF gives you a higher probability of success than just owning one individual name. Jim, go ahead, jump in here. Yeah, well, I, within healthcare, I really like the pharmaceutical sector right now. And, and look, everybody knows I love CVS and Thermo Fisher, but you got to look at Bristol Meyer, you got to look at AbbVie, and I'm starting to look at Pfizer as well. These are low PE, high dividend yielding stocks. And the most important thing is that with Build Back Better on the back burner, is that enough bees for you? Um, <laughs> the uh, the threat of drug pricing control is really off in the future. So this is a time to buy pharma. You did a good job with all those bees. And whenever I hear Bristol Myers, I, I hear the way Jim Cramer says it every time. Bristol Myers. Anyway, final trades coming up next on Halftime. At Halftime, we'll be live from the SoFi Stadium tomorrow ahead of the Super Bowl. Scott will be joined by the committee, Al Michaels, and an exclusive interview with Jeffrey Gunlock, the CEO of Double Line Capital. That is tomorrow at noon Eastern. Go Bengals. Ohio girl, always got to shoot for the home team, but we got to get to the final trade. Shannon, let's start with you. IQVIA, this is a company that works with life sciences companies to help deliver uh, positive endpoints and trials through data and process enhancement. Got it. Bryn, what are you watching? I'm watching NVIDIA here, but you can sell the June 300 calls, collect $19, which is over 7% in income. You still have 20% upside. I think it's a great covered call trade right now. Rob. 
I'm going to go with what I talked about earlier, which is PEJ, the Invesco uh, Leisure and Entertainment ETF. I think it's a good one. And Jen Liebenthal. Uh, Win Resorts, Courtney. Respect the rally that's been happening the last couple of weeks. This is an undervalued reopening stock and really worth owning. Got it. Well, that does it for the halftime report today. The exchange begins with Kelly Evans right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.